Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. It's been a very diverse journey. Obviously, Muslims now 23% of the world's population uh, existing in just about every country on earth, and many of which they have been for many centuries, an extraordinary cornucopia of uh, polymaths, uh, ideal types, exemplars, heroes. Uh, it's been uh, uh, a saga. The story of the Ummah is a great uh, saga or epic. Uh, and what we've tried to do has been to choose indicative individuals uh, of the various, almost indefinitely, varied range of human types, cultural spaces, genders, levels of education, orientations in da'wah and leadership uh, that this endlessly uh, diverse uh, ummah can present. And one of the uh, leitmotifs, I suppose, of what we've been trying to say is that authenticity in Islam does not mean uh, what is monochrome, but Islam historically has functioned through the prophetic soul uh, as a kind of prism, the singular divine light, indivisible and pure, reflected, refracted into uh, an extraordinarily dazzling rainbow of uh, different possibilities, according to the ikhtilaf al-sinatikum wa al-wanikum, the difference of your languages and uh, colors, uh, which the Quran so uniquely amongst world scriptures celebrates. So it's been uh, a complicated journey in that we have decided that the adherence to the Sunnah, which is ultimately the essence of Muslim belongingness, does not represent the creation of a singular human type, but rather a way in which different human types can be uplifted towards perfection through the light that is, for Muslims, uniquely refracted through the prism of the prophetic soul. This is something that Muslims today struggle with. Ours is the age of single solutions, of ideologies rather than adiyan, of uh, quantitative explanations of the human condition. We are seeking for singular paradigms and unique outcomes and no doubt our fearfulness as an ummah, the fact that we've been outflanked and wrong-footed, put on the defensive by a resurgent, unexpectedly so, Western uh, civilization, has meant that we have been too defensive in many cases to celebrate the diversity and the love of ambiguity and multiple solutions that until the mid-20th century was really the watchword of what it was to be an informed member of the prophetic ummah. This has been uh, very much to our uh, discredit and disadvantage. But it is the case of the threatened, frightened human being that he or she will reach for a singular module of identity. And you can see this not just in the history of Islam, but in European history over the last century or so. Whenever a community feels that it has been threatened, threatened wrong-footed by the Treaty of Versailles, to take a well-known example, it tends to retreat into a single set of answers about what it means to be itself. This is not the historic reality of the Ummah of Islam, which celebrates diversity, plurality, inclusion, and this is the meaning, as we have seen, of the Ishmaelite charism. 
The Ishmaelite branch of Revelation is that which includes. The line of Isaac is that which, despite its presentation of a luminous series of prophetic examples, has tended to exclude. Ishmael includes Isaac. Isaac does not include Ishmael. The Ishmaelites are the paradigmatic unchosen, but Muslims have not reciprocated. Part of the khatmiyyah of Islam, part of its engineered status as the spiritual way appropriate for the uh, times of turbulence as history sinks towards some kind of conclusion, denouement, final uh, resolution, is this inclusivity. And those of our great mujaddid scholars of history who have reflected on what exactly it is that makes Islam distinctly, distinctively Islamic have always stressed this shumulia, this inclusiveness of Islam with its unique incorporation of a variety of cultures, linguistic groups, uh, devotional, mystical, algebraic, philosophical possibilities. Uh, this has been part of the culture of Islam. Uh, unmistakably from the outset. Was it not the case, we looked at this briefly last time, when we considered uh, the, to some moderns, strange paradox of the fact that the rise of Islam generated a luxuriant culture of love poetry. Islam as the unleasher of uh, undeniable, because it's there and was central, culture of romantic verse. Uh, the fact that one of the Holy Prophet's most staggering innovations in his people was to create spaces that were inclusive. The word jamir, mosque, means inclusive, literally. The first non-tribal space in Arabia, apart from the occasional truce days around the Kaaba, was uh, the Holy Prophet's mosque in Medina, where for the first time in the history of the Arabian subcontinent, didn't matter at all what tribe you were from, you could sit anywhere, and if you were at the front, that wasn't because of your ancestry, it was because you just got there first. And it's uh, almost impossible now to realise how staggering an innovation that new prophetic uh, geography uh, must have been in that time. Uh, but those people, detribalized, universal, and incorporating the non-Arab even, there was Sahib, the Greek, Sahabi. There was Bilal, giving the Azan, the great African Sahabi. There was Salman al-Farisi, the great Iranian Sahabi. And there are others, a space that is in Arabia, where Arabic is the language of the liturgy, but where there is already the fertile sign of a future universalism. Uh, the whole earth has been made a mosque for me. So in the original paradigm of Islam, where its uh, topography is focused on the jamir, the inclusive space, we have uh, a sign and an expectation of Islam's future inclusivity, something which Muslims today are taking a step back from, but for psychological rather than theological reasons. So in all of these different human types, what makes each of them an Islamic human type it is monotheism, yes, but the Jews also have monotheism and other communities as well. What makes it specifically Islamic is the second shahada, not so much the first. And the second shahada is doing what exactly? What is the principle that creates this uh, 
irradiating spectrum? Well, the principle really is that often underrated and underestimated fact, uh, which is part of the Khatmiya of Islam called the Sunnah. All of these people, whether it be Sukaina bint al-Hussein or um, Maulana Hussein, Madani or Nana Asma'u or Imam Shamil or whoever, uh, their Islamicity consists uh, not in their paying lip service to a human exemplar, but by accepting the, that human exemplar as the guiding paradigm for everything that they did. And this again is something fairly new, and we've already had cause to reflect upon this. Even the Mosaic dispensation did not generate a tradition where the rabbi tried to be like Moses in every respect. The rabbi tried to follow Torah, most of which was in an oral form and in the Talmud and subsequently, and there's a lot of fiqh convergences between the Jewish and the Islamic way of being human. But the exemplar was not so much a human being as a, a, an oral and a written tradition of regulation, stories, and doctrines. Fihi wanur, as the Qur'an says of the Torah, in it is guidance and a light. But the Islamic way specifically is to take one's point of origination as a human being. Seems strange in a scripture-directed tradition. Why not just the book? No, Islam is Kitab and Sunnah. Kitab and Sunnah. And the Kitab is operationalized through the Sunnah. Those small sects and denominations which insist on the Quran alone end up not having anything at all of the religion because Aqimu Salah Wa'atu Zakah, the Quran says, establish the prayer pay the zakat, but you can't really do those things unless you know the details which are present in the sunnah. You can't really separate the two if you want to have a religion that can be fully operational. So Sunni Islam names itself not after the Qur'an, we don't say it's Qur'anic Islam, even though that's our first scripture, uh, and its text is the only fully infallible, uncontested text. No, we name ourselves after the second of these sources, the Sunnah, we are Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, because the Sunnah, like the Quran, is only itself when interpreted by the faithful community of experts. So, this is something distinctive about Islam in that it's primordiality, and again, we've looked at that as a specific quality of Islam, one of its khasa'is, that the khatmiya of this Hanifi religion means that humanity is being returned to truly archaic and aboriginal forms. Uh, uh, a form of worship that is not read from a book, but which is through memorization. A scripture which seems to be full of incantations and invocations of the sacrality of nature. A style of life and a calendar which is determined not by abstract calculation, which is the consequence of civilization, but by the, the, the raw function of the motions of the solar system, the sun and the moon. There is something aboriginal, archaic, fitri about Islam, and this is why he says, This is a critically important and a sound hadith. I have been sent with the Hanifi 
Samha religion. Samha means generous, including hospitable, tolerant, literally. And the Hanifi is that which is what is primordial about the way of Sidna Ibrahim, alayhi salam, who is from a time that is primordial, aboriginal, before and without a complication, and the specificities of culture. And the Kaaba itself denotes this. It's just a black cube. It doesn't belong to any civilization. It is just uh, archaic, primordial, uh, archetypal architecture. So we've looked at this several times, that what is distinctively Islamic is that which uh, relates to the Khatmiyyah of Islam and its Abrahamic claim to be the reversion to something that is truly ancient and primordial. And with modern paleontology and archaeology, we can see uh, that, in fact, the great bulk of human history has been precisely that. The rise of the civilizations uh, has been maybe the last four or five thousand years. Before then, 50,000 years, 200,000 years, nobody really knows, of primordial life. So there is something in the sunnah of the Holy Prophet وسلم, that takes us at the end of this great prophetic cycle back to how things used to be and were and reading the Qur'an uh, after reading the Bible, for instance, only makes sense when you uh, grasp this. And this is a problem for a lot of Muslims with inferiority complexes about progress and modernity. The elites in the Muslim world who have been dazzled into blindness by Western technical prowess and want Islam to be a very modern religion and a scientific religion and a religion of progress. And, uh, that's apologetics. There's nothing in the Qur'an about discover uh, how uh, creation works. Be amazed by it. Uh, but it's, it's neither for it nor against it. It's saying, look back to what is normally human. And this creates all kinds of strange obsessions and evident inferiority complexes amongst a lot of modern Muslims that simply want Islam to be this forward-looking thing that embraces technology. Technology is not embracing human beings, it's, it's just uh, grey, inhuman, cold, uh, uh, and we shouldn't embrace it in return. It doesn't want to embrace us. Increasingly, it's taking over key aspects of our humanity and showing no signs of, of diminishing. So we're radical in that sense. So this thing called the sunnah is one of those aspects of the tradition that affirm this primordiality. Like ancient man, when we're in the mosque, there isn't somebody there reading from a book or from anything. He's not allowed to read. And these rules about this form of worship that again is so primordial that you can't identify it with any particular culture, Eastern or Western. It's pure geometry, a geometry that binds body, mind and spirit that reflect the movements of the rising, the setting of the sun, the phases of the moon, really archaic and ancient. That is uh, today's way of uh, returning to what is our, for 99% of human history, the normal way of being human. And a way, therefore, of avoiding some of the sicknesses of modernity, which are technologically induced by our alienation, the fact that we're living in ways that cause increasing dysfunction. Uh, Antidepressant sales last year reached record highs. All kinds of confusions about identity and about gender and about self and self-harming. And we're really uneasy and uncomfortable as a species. The birth rate is going down. We're dysfunctional. 
the sunna is this more precious now than ever before time machine that enables us still to operate in the modern world and to go to work and to earn a living and to get married, but in a way that protects us from these technologically enabled dysfunctions that are causing so much human unhappiness. But try and tell this to the deracinated elites in the Muslim world who want to have the biggest skyscraper in the world and the biggest clock in the world and all of this sort of expression of their inferiority complex and, and they can't get it at all because their hearts have been stung by this idea that they've been outstripped by the clever white man with all of his machines. Uh, that's fatal to try and be Islam when you have this inferiority complex about science and technology is really very difficult. So uh, there is something of a radical reversion to human normalcy about the Sunnah, which is undeniable from, from its forms. And therefore it is a very precious thing that it is to re-establish balance. And we can't do that on our own. Every summer solstice, Half of the New Age hipsters from, uh, from Clapham and Ballam make their way to Stonehenge. They don't want to go to church any longer. That's not cool. They don't know what it is or what it isn't. It's not cool. So off the radar, they want to go to Stonehenge. And they get up so early in the morning and they sit there for the great moment when the grey stones reflect the summer solstice sunrise and everybody's strumming it. They haven't got a clue what they're doing or what the building was for, or who made the sunrise. Complete ignorance, but they still feel we want to engage somehow with some shamanistic love of the earth because modernity is all about alienation. This is very common, not just Stonehenge, but go to Totnes or um, any of those places, Glastonbury, uh, across the Western world, there are people who feel a deep sense of loss as a result of our excommunication from nature. Uh, and the fact that we've now effectively become the enemies of nature, not in harmony with it, but the natural world cringes from us. <coughs> uh, I always think dolphins, which are supposed to be the most intelligent creatures, must be amongst the least intelligent because they're so friendly to us. Here are these weird tourists who want to swim with the dolphins. Get out of here. This is the species that's destroying our habitat. Who wants to get up close with those strange white things that can't swim very well? get out, but no, they want to be friendly still. It's uh, quite disappointing. <coughs> so this is the deep dysfunction which we have reached. <coughs> the sunnah, which is from an ancient time, which nobody has the temerity to fiddle with, uh, even though it's a poor fit with the freakish and egotistic, uh, hedonistic value set of technologically enabled, enabled mentality. Um, Nobody really has the effrontery, if they're in any case religiously sincere, to say, well, I think this could be a little bit better. And the Holy Prophet didn't quite understand that pork isn't so bad for you. And you have those revisionisms in some traditions, but uh, in Islam, we are mahfuzun. Uh, we are protected from uh, that kind of corrosion because religion is not really about conforming to the age. It wants the age to conform to it because religion is from heaven and we are from below and what values that come from below are subject to gravity and ego and uh, it's very evident the unhappiness to which it leads. So let me read you something from William Chittick uh, who has a number of recent books uh, but this is his book on Ibn Arabi where he explains Ibn Arabi's uh, to some minds 
peculiar love of the Sharia and love of the Sunnah. Isn't he the guy who says everything is the same and part of God and wahdat al-wujud? No, actually, read the book. But a great lover of the Sunnah and a member of the Zahiri Madhab, in other words, really strict in his interpretation of Quran and Hadith. So here's Chittik's uh, explanation <coughs> of why we need these rules and boundaries. <coughs> According to Ibn al-Arabi, the law is the scale, mizan, in which must be weighed everything having to do with God, knowledge, love, spiritual realization, and the human state in general. Without the scale of the law, we will remain forever swimming in a shoreless ocean of ambiguity. Only the scale can provide a point of reference in terms of which knowledge and all human endeavors may be judged. The law capital L, makes it possible to move toward the centre and avoid wallowing in infinite dispersion, overcome by ignorance, multiplicity and misguidance. One might say that the function of the law is to sort out relationships and put things in their proper perspective, thus providing a divine norm for human knowledge and action. Faced with he or not he, wherever they look, human beings cannot possibly search out the he and cling to light without a discernment deriving from light itself. No doubt everyone has an inner light known as intelligence, but that also needs correct guidance to grow in intensity and begin functioning on its own. Only the friends of God have reached the station where they can follow the inner light without reference to the outer law. But this, as Ibn Arabi would say, is a station of great danger, khatar, Iblis and countless spiritual teachers have been led astray by it. The law remains the only concrete anchor. Without this form for human life, which is the sunnah, we wallow, as he says, in endless, indefinite indeterminacies, and humanity will drift, and because of our nature, tend to drift downwards. People clamouring for, for praise for their seeking of particular pleasures, um, that's what we are really, um, we are more easily distracted by something pleasurable than by something noble. That's the character of Bani Adam. So for this great exponent of the, the, the highest understanding of Islamic ontology, a Sheikh al-Akbar, the towering figure of the second half of Islamic history, uh, it's not letter versus spirit, letter is how we discover spirit. This is to be discovered through the Zahir, and hence the Sunnah becomes an infinitely precious ontology and also an epistemology. In other words, <coughs> it is by the Sunnah that we know. Because my mind is not some kind of detached thing floating in <coughs> a Parnassian space. No, my mind is part of my physiology, part of my body, part of my experience. There's no such thing as a discarnate consciousness. Um, and therefore, <coughs> that which I do with my outward form and with my moral life towards the outward forms of other human subjects is going to affect the moral and the intellectual and philosophical decisions that I take. <coughs> and this is the phenomenon that modern philosophy will call the body subject. Getting away from Descartes' idea that there's the body-mind dualism no, it's, it's a single aspect of a single thing, which is why in our eschatology we are subject to a bodily resurrection. 
and eternal punishment or bliss is a bodily thing. We're not just kind of points of consciousness in a discarnate way floating around in some infinite and eternal space, which would be pretty unpleasant, really. We wouldn't really be ourselves. So part of the primordiality, the khatmiya of Islam, is that we are embodied human subjects, and this is how we have to be. And any doctor will tell you that what you do to the spirit can have physical manifestations. And if you've lost a limb or something, it has an effect on how you... It's fairly obvious. They are interdependent. So we need the law... We need the light coming from the truth, which is the source of our being anyway. Otherwise, we will tend to go downhill and the choices we make will be stupid choices. Uh, like the hipster in Peckham, who might go to Evensong down the road in some Victorian church where at least something would make sense, and it's next door. But instead, he has to go down to Stonehenge where he hasn't got a clue what anything means and watch the sunrise. And this is the... It's from ego. All of these contemporary decisions not to do religion tend to come not from a serious study of theology and philosophy, but from ego, what people want to feel like. It's not cool to do some things, it's cool to do others, so let's do feng shui or yoga or mindfulness or some other thing that's cool. Not because we've really discovered, thought about what Orthodox Judaism might do when you move into a new home. No, it's not cool. So without the law, without these structures coming from above, humanity tends to drift into subjectivity and uh, the sometimes extreme forms of crazy uh, body-worshipping hedonism that modernity is subject to, which is also linked to body hatred in many ways, sort of fat-shaming and lots of tattoos and uh, uh, dieting disorders, anorexia, self-harm. These things seem to be going up. So the love of the body and the hate of the body is disorder which is part of a single thing which is due to the fact that we don't know any longer what it's for or how to deal with it in a wholesome way and the sunnah is precisely what you do with it so that the spirit can be as human beings are designed to be in harmony with heaven and with earth so yeah even arabi um, the sheikh al-akbar is very clear about the law being the means by which the spirit is enhanced and uh, uh, becomes healthy and itself. <coughs> so the sunnah is what it is to be Muslim. Uh, but the sunnah is not, as some modern reductionist Muslims want it to be, just a kind of list of do's and don'ts, <coughs> after which you are, mashallah, very good Muslim. I praise his tahajjud, you can marry my daughter, mashallah. Mm, this is not the reason for our creation, really. The law is there, and it is a law. It establishes halal and haram, and <coughs> God cares about halal and haram, and they shape the boundaries of our lives. But the point of it <coughs> is not really that the whole of creation should be like God's great big dispensing machine, like a chocolate machine. You just put in good works, like coins, and you get out a treat at the end of the process, or in the next world I'll get this, that and the other. And some kind of tabligi-style sermons can make it sound like a very transactional. But that's actually i'tizal, that's the Mu'tazilite view, and that was rejected by the Ahl-Sunnah, because God does not enter into any kind of quantified relationship with human beings because of his limitless nature and his merciful nature. There is justice, 
but he has written mercy upon himself, which is good news for those of us who really wouldn't like to meet the all-knowing seer of everything that we do uh, on the basis just of justice. That would be fairly terrifying. But no, he said that he is Arham al-Rahimin, and there is the intercession of the Holy Prophet, and that's what gives us uh, a degree of hope. So the sunnah is not a kind of transactional thing, as some people, particularly those who've studied some science subjects, might want religion to be. Uh, but it's a more qualitative thing, which is about uh, returning the human body-mind composite to a healthy, functioning, primordial state which enables it naturally to recognise what is beautiful and what is good and what is true and what is healthy for itself and for others. Uh, so that's why we talk of the epistemology of the sunnah. <coughs> now, there's different ways of conceiving this. And it has to be said that not everybody in our heritage has quite worked this out. And there are some who have thought that the sunnah is just the basis for uh, cutting a deal with God. Uh, um, and we find that the sunnah and the figure of the Holy Prophet, salam, is so axiomatic and in the second shahada, uh, is variously received and variously celebrated. Um, so, here, for instance, is a case of a 20th century Syrian jurist's understanding of the importance of the sunnah and the indispensability of the Holy Prophet. This is not a fundamentalist text, this is a sort of traditional um, Shafi'i jurist's text. Uh, and this is Abdullah Sirajuddin al-Husseini, who is one of the great uh, ulama of 20th century Aleppo in Syria. <coughs> so at the end of this book about the Holy Prophet وسلم, this jurist chooses to end with these thoughts. Everything that the Muhammadan message brought and encompassed of commandments and prohibitions and acts of worship and social transactions and conduct and morality and rights and responsibilities is all built upon the foundation of mercy to humanity. All of this is nothing but mercy to the world and mercy to all nations and peoples because in it lies protection against those who would immerse themselves in corruption and evil and spread it amongst others. <clears throat> if any of a person's limbs becomes infected, it is a merciful act <coughs> to remove the limb before the infection can spread to the rest of the body. Likewise, society as a whole can be compared to a single body in the eyes of the sacred law. The essence of all this is that the Muhammadan message came with mercy and for mercy's sake, and this is why the language uh, of the Qur'an is that of encompassment, and is thinking here of the, the, the verse, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ We've sent you only as a mercy to the world. Worlds. Why is it that it's, we've sent you only as a mercy? To, why not? We've sent you as a mercy to the worlds. The ulama say this. This is why the language of the verse is that of encompassment. We've only sent you for this purpose, so that the sagacious person could see that the entire content of this message and all that it encompasses is nothing but mercy to humanity in this life and the next, and within it is their happiness and their rectitude and their success in this life and the next. Uh, the Muhammadan message did not come to bring felicity, rectitude, success in the hereafter alone. It provided the means to them all, both in the life of this world and in the hereafter. So 
That's the classical jurist position, the expert in Usul, and if you get into Islamic jurisprudence, you can see that the law has certain purposes. It's not just a bunch of random instructions uh, delivered by God, uh, but it all has uh, a reason. And for the jurists, it's the ethical reason that God is merciful and wishes human beings to be spared uh, their own, the consequences of their own wayful, waywardness. Uh, and the purpose of the sunnah, therefore, is to maximize mercy on earth. So this is, you might say, an ethical or a moral interpretation of the sunnah. This isn't our epistemology of the sunnah. The sunnah as an instrument of knowing, <coughs> knowing God, uh, but rather it's uh, the sunnah as an instantiation of how to live morally, that is to say, mercifully. And everything in the sharia is believed to be nothing other than an expression of the purpose of the divine sending of the final messenger, which is uh, the prevailing of mercy. Uh, <clears throat> and this is incidentally one reason why some Muslims nowadays who don't study the classical texts of jurisprudence go astray. Because once you get into the ways in which ijtihad is performed and the sharia is deduced from the kitab and the sunnah, you can see that the ulama are aware of the fundamental purpose of the Qur'an and the sunnah, which is to make things easier for people and to make things merciful for mankind. Again, God is not out to get us, but wants things to be as easy as possible because this is the religion of the khatmiyyah, the end times and where things uh, are supposed to be uh, merciful and easy. But when Muslims are practicing sharia because they're angry with the regimes or they want to raise a, a angry fist of defiance against the global superpowers where religion becomes a matter of identity seeking rather than looking at its self-defined purposes, watch out because then it won't be a reflection of mercy, it'll be a reflection of the angry, vengeful, essentially jahili turbulences of the distressed and deracinated third world radical, uh, which is often not a sign of mercy to humanity or to the ummah, but a sign of <coughs> outraged pride. Uh, 9-11, yeah, uh, a kind of icon of Arab outraged pride, nothing to do with mercy or beauty, the exact opposite. And this is the, the danger that the Ummah faces with this inversion, because these people, engineers, medics and so forth, have not read the basic texts uh, of our jurisprudence and don't understand the ethical imperatives of the Sunnah. Um, yeah, so this book, a good example of perfectly legitimate juridical understanding of what the sunnah is and what the moral message of the religion is. And it's characteristic of books about the Holy Prophet, وسلم, which are there essentially to reconnect us to the necessity for the following of the sunnah, that they give us these shama'il, these qualities the virtues of the Holy Prophet, how he was. So let's just, from this angle, read the contents of this book. It's uh, available in a perfectly respectable English translation if people want to get hold of it. Imam Abdullah Sirajuddin al-Husseini, our Master Muhammad, Messenger of Allah, his sublime character and exalted attributes, 
forwarded, forwarded by Sheikh Ninawe, translated by Khalid Williams. So let's go briefly through the table of contents so you can see how this juridical, ethical understanding of the Sunnah is articulated. <coughs> Part one, the physical beauty of our Master Muhammad. Part two, the eloquence and wisdom of our Master Muhammad. Part three, the exalted status of our Master Muhammad. Part four, the sublime character of our Master Muhammad. His kind companionship with all people, his lofty manners with those who spoke to him, the warm reception he would grant to his guests, his smile, his cheery disposition with people, the way he responded to greetings, the honour he extended to people, <coughs> his perfect kindness and concern for everybody, his generous visits to his companions, his preservation of the bonds of love, uh, his kindness to boorish Bedouins, his great humility, etc., etc., the ethical things in this fourth chapter. And part five at the end, of our Master Muhammad, the Messenger of Mercy. So his mercy to the world, his mercy with his family and household, his mercy with children, his mercy with orphans, his mercy with animals, his mercy with birds. These are the classic uh, moral topics, all supported with, with hadiths, which build up the traditional idea of the ethical prophet, the moral <coughs> exemplar, the sunnah as a crafting of the self into a model of merciful human uh, excellence. <coughs> But there's another uh, way in which this second shahada and this uh, way in which the single light has been uh, refracted into the world through the prophetic prism, which is the gigantic genre of prophetic panegyric, madh or nad, madih, probably the biggest genre in the gigantic uh, Muslim library of poetry. And people think of Busiri's Borda uh, and all of the commentaries and all of the books written in emulation of the Borda and all of the books which have versified commentaries on the Borda and it's itself a huge genre. You could create a whole BA programme just on Borda studies for sure, <coughs> just on the basis of what the Ottomans did with the Borda, for instance, and the translations and the paraphrases and wow. Uh, that's big in our literature. Uh, and it's uh, interesting to note that unlike uh, this juridical approach, it focuses on certain events and, as it were, cosmic functions of the Holy Prophet. So the birth of the Holy Prophet and the miracles which attended it, and then the mi'raj of the Holy Prophet, and then the shafa'ah of the Holy Prophet. Those three themes tend to be at the centre of this uh, literature, things that in this juridical thing, which is kind of moral, ethical, uh, may not be particularly stressed. So we think of the sunnah, we think of that dimension of the prophetic perfection, the kind of cosmic intercessory saviour role of the holy prophet, which since the earliest times in Muslim poetic literature has been so significant. So, uh, <coughs> this is almost at random. <coughs> from my shelves, any diwan of classical poetry uh, from the Ottoman world, the Persian world, the Uzbek world, the Sumatran world will have things like this at the beginning. Usually the first poem will be about the glory of God and praise to God. And then it will move on to the Na'at, praise of the Holy Prophet wasallam. So. Let's listen to one or two of these and think about what this tells us about how the Ummah has received and treasured this 
sonatic principle. And it, it's something very distinctive and different. So I'm going to do it in Turkish. Uh, it sounds better that way. And then attempt a translation. I won't read the whole thing. This is um, by a uh, poet, Hayreti, who's one of the early Ottoman poets, who's from what's now Macedonia, um, probably of Albanian ancestry. But he's writing in Ottoman Turkish. Ey padişah her düşera şahi enbiya ve hadi khuda u şahin şahi asfiya ser rişte mürüvvet u ser çeşme-i kerem ser defteyni büvvet u ser halqi safa sensin du kevni şahu şahin şah ser firaz ey enbiya ser ve ser khayli evliya ey pişvaya ehli hidayet tapun durur Şah zemin o mahi felek khacey dünya yaqdun çirağı şer'ini küldün cihanı nur oldun kamoya rehbeyü rehbin rehnuma etc that's about a third of it uh, of course with islamic poetry uh, to be declaimed and also to be sung um, but what he's saying, and if you have Urdu or Persian or Dari or one of those languages or Turkish, you've probably figured out half of what it is because the vocabulary in that late Persianate Islamic world is so, so much shared, particularly the uh, poetic uh, language. But he's saying, uh, O king of uh, the two lands, uh, prince of the prophets, the one sent by God as a guide, uh, the emperor of the pure of heart, uh, the exemplar of manly virtue, the fountainhead of generosity, uh, the register of prophecy, uh, and the, uh, the final link in the chain of purity. In both worlds, you are the king and the emperor without peer. O you who is of the prophets, the leader, and the highest imagining of the saints. O one who stands amidst the, on the spread carpet of the people of guidance, the king of the earth and the leader of the, of the world, of the moon and the, uh, the, the spheres. Uh, you have filled the world with light by lighting the lantern of your law. Uh, you have been for countless thousands the leader and the guidance of mankind, etc. Well, it's a standard <coughs> Naat poem, isn't it? We've heard quadrillions of them already. Uh, and our culture, our poetic culture in particular, tended to find its aesthetic pleasure in small, subtle tweaks to familiar themes. This is the best of all themes. Who could be more amazing to write about than the Holy Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa Let's do it again. And without sort of Facebook and screens, we've got a lot of time in the evening after eating our kebab and drinking our coffee. What is there to do? Let's have another poem. This is a literate world. Tiny little tweaks with the rhythm and slightly new allusions and alliterations. Yeah, it was a very refined world, and in translation, those refinements are necessarily lost. But still, there is uh, a tremendous rhetorical and convincing force. So if I've... Um, have 
I got? Yes, here we are. This now is from the Persian world, Saadi, so relatively early. Um, from Saadi's Bustan. Uh, and this is in an English translation. And it's an interesting problem, really, how you render this very specifically Persian kind of pulling out all of the organ stops of panegyric and these repetitions and alliterations. Ah, you do that into English uh, because we have our own ways of, you read Milton, of being very Baroque in poetry. Sensibility is different. Anyway, so here's Wiccan's attempt to do uh, uh, justice to Saadi's uh, version. And it's the same kind of thing, but heard here through an English ear. Generous of dispositions, fair in manners, proclaimer to creatures, intercessor for peoples, imam of apostles, leader on the way, confident of God, Gabriel's alighting place, intercessor for mankind, master of resurrection and revival, imam of guidance, president of congregations, register, interlocutor who signifies the wheel of heaven, all lights are of his light but rays, intercessor obeyed, generous proclaimer, well-favored, full-bodied, fragrant, gloriously marked, Orphan, whose uncreated Quran soundly effaced so many confessions, libraries, and so on. Again, that's uh, poem number two in uh, Saadi's Bustan, and it's the same kind of thing. And this, listening to this kind of voice has been really fundamental to traditional Muslim uh, aesthetics and originality when the best subject has already been reached is not really the point. The point is beauty. And the point here is to reconnect people with a sense of the ontological prophet. So the first is the ethical project, prophet, and now we have the ontological prophet. That is to say, uh, what he does for me cosmically. The mi'raj brings the prayer, which shapes my life, and indicates the unique khatmiyyah of the religion and helps me to make sense of the ongoing presence of the other religions whose founders were led by him in that great amazing prayer at Masjid al-Aqsa. Uh, and then the intercession, that mysterious but sonatically affirmed and well-documented end-time event where justice, as it were, is... Uh, shunted onto a siding, lucky for us, and mercy prevails. But again, just as the sunnah represents uh, a principle enacted in the form of a human being, God's mercy at the end of time rep is represented by the intercession, which is again God's mercy represented as a human being. So again, this idea of the personification, not through some abstraction, but a real human being, albeit in this kind of exalted, transfigured state at uh, the judgment, uh, becomes really important. And hence this personal devotion to the Holy Prophet absolutely gigantically important through our culture always. So the fullness of the idea of the, the, the Prophet as perfect man, al-insan al-kamil, and God's determination to do three things through interfaces. We see God not directly, but reflected in the broken but amazing fragments of the world. And we know how the soul should be and how to interact with that outward multiplicity. 
not through just reading a text, chanting the Veda or reading Torah, but through observing how an individual is himself uh, transformed and uh, transfigured by those texts. So the exemplar again takes us back to those very ancient primordial times when people didn't really have scriptures as such, but there were recitals that they had orally, but it was the person, uh, the, the hero in the epic who was regarded as the ultimate exemplar and the source of identity, meaning transcendence for the tribe. So um, we've said a lot about this, but I still want to try and, before I get to my paradigm today, don't worry, I haven't lost the plot completely. Um, that the great thinkers of Islam are those who have not just, as it were, caught the ball from earlier generations and tossed it on to later generations, the traditio, even though that is an indispensable part of their uh, role, uh, the sacred heritage of ilm, which must be in an intact way passed on to the next generation, even though with each generation something gets lost. It's kind of like inheritance tax or something. You can never, you can never get all of those hadiths that you heard to the next generation, but if you get most of them, that's pretty good, and you can die, hopefully, uh, without a sense of guilt. Uh, but the great thinkers, we've had Ibn Arabi with his insistence on the reason why we have to have the law. Uh, but here is Imam al-Ghazali in his Ihya ulum al-Din, which is a mysterious book in many ways. And we've already had one paradigm lecture in which we've talked about what he seems to be doing with this book. So we don't need to revisit that in detail. But just to, to remind ourselves that it seems to be a kind of extended spiritual autobiography, but without endless boring personal reflections, the kind of modern autobiography, which is very about me and how interesting I am and uh, mm, what I had for breakfast on the day when I saw a famous painting. And uh, uh, This is not really our style. Uh, we don't have a big autobiographical tradition because you know, we don't matter very much, really. Um, truth matters. Salvation matters, virtue is amazing, beauty is amazing. We, mm, just as well, people don't know what we're really like, uh, who really wants to write an honest autobiography. So, but this Ihya uh, al-Muddin is a kind of very sophisticated uh, roadmap uh, to help people along the journey which the Imam has, amidst many serious traumas, himself uh, travelled, which is a journey not really from one doctrine to another, and it's not really a journey from fiqh to Sufism, as some people will assume, but it's a journey from a superficial understanding of the sunnah to a really deep understanding of the sunnah, that is to say the functionality of the sunnah, which isn't just a set of switches which you press to turn on lights in the next world. Uh, but it's a way of reconfiguring yourself so that you're once again in this fitri sense of, t uh, of mizan and harmony with, with God and his creation. Now, this comes up uh, in a confusingly large number of contexts in the Ihya. So at the beginning of the earlier uh, chapters, he talks about the prayer, but the secrets of prayer. 
evolution and the secrets of evolution, because their secrets is not going to spill all of the beans, but we do get the sense that uh, these outward forms, which of course are sonatically uh, instantiated, have an inward effect. That the wadot is not just a way of pleasing God by washing up to your elbows and chanting, well, God is pleased, but the revelation is not just for that but is a way of changing you because there is a certain psychological transformation and a humbling that comes about when you do certain things that you may not be able to conceptualize very clearly. And the same with the prayer. Putting your forehead on the ground pleases God and ticks the boxes and the collections of fiqh, but it also changes your being in ways that you might find it difficult and subtle to articulate, but you may well feel it in some probably rather imprecise way. Hajj, who knows what the Hajj really does, the tawaf and the straight lines, and the, um, it's unlike anything else. Uh, but people tend to feel very different after they've done the Hajj, especially if it's a good Hajj. Um, the first Hajj people do nowadays tends to be, where is the KFC? And why did that Nigerian woman jab me with her umbrella? And why is my air cooler not working in this tent? And why is the Motawif smoking? And that's the first Hajj. <laughs> and then, second Hajj, you're kind of resigned to that. And the, the beauty of the thing, the mysterious majesty, carries you along with it. Um, I'm not saying we should do this modern thing of doing Hajj every year, because you know, let, let the poor folk have a chance, pay for some impoverished cousin in Bangladesh to do it. You have to do it yourself every year. But still, uh, the Hajj is a kind of veiled thing in a way that many of our other obligations are not. But still, Imam al-Ghazali has a book, Asrar al-Hajj, The Secrets of the Hajj, and gives us some indication as to why it's effective. Uh, so here you have an expression of these fundamental rule-based dimensions of the Sunnah, which invite us not to transcend them, you can't transcend something that was the essence of the prophetic excellence, but rather to inhabit them properly and to benefit from them so that they sort you out, heal you, rebalance you. So here's uh, one of the most important sections of the Ihya, which comes strategically halfway through, book 20, which he calls Kitab Adab al-Ma'isha wa Akhlaq al-Nubuwa, the book of the courtesies of living, and the character traits of prophecy, which is a kind of, a bit like Hosseini's book, Shema'il-type works on the prophet smile, the prophet being nice to birds, you get that. Uh, but uh, written from the imams, always cautious, because he really wants you know, the, the, the exoterists, the Ahl-Zahir, not to find excuses to... <coughs> send the book back to Amazon or whatever, um, and giving it one star. But he wants everybody to take this seriously. And there's a lot of kind of veiled content in, in the Ihya, which makes it helpful to our fundamentalized uh, modern Muslim ummah, which is hypercritical of anything uh, that doesn't seem to be uh, part of the plain sense of things. But he has this chapter which is about the excellence of the Holy Prophet, uh, even though he's talking about that everywhere in the Ihya, really, which is an exposition of the, the Sunnah. Um, so he says this in order to give us a hint of what he thinks the Sunnah is doing for us. The courtesies of 
our outward forms are the address or the indication of the adab of what is going on within us. Mm. So people's outward conduct is an indication of what they're doing inside, not the kind of formal practices, but the adab, the, the way in which they do things. Mm. And the movements of the outward limbs are the consequence of the thoughts that we have. And our formal actions are the consequences of our morality. And our courtesies are the sprinklings of knowledge, kind of insight. Uh, so that's a subtler thing. And the secrets which are enshrined in the hearts are the sowing places, the, the fields for cultivation of actions and the places where they spring up from. And the lights which are in our inward nature are those which shine out upon our outward forms and make them beautiful and, make, and clarify and purify them. Uh, so, and he goes on about this to indicate the uh, interconnectedness of our outward and our inward life. And then he goes on to indicate the extent to which we can be genuinely religious if we're just going through the outward form of things, but inwardly we're something else and somewhere else. The, the atrocity of the prayer that is punctiliously performed by somebody whose mind is simply elsewhere. This is a kind of sickness. We have to bring the two into focus. This is one reason why, according to our ulama, the Dajjal has one eye, because <coughs> he can't see things in focus. The times of turbulence are to be times when people are focused only on the outward of things or only on the inward of things. So they want to go to Stonehenge and light a candle or something, but they don't really want the boundaries of formal religion. They want spirituality. There's a lot of that in our time. Or alternatively, the people who just want to find the strictest possible interpretation of religion. And the Hanbalis aren't strict enough, so they find the Zahiris, but they're not strict enough, so they find some strange Wahhabi, ultra-strict interpretation, and they find themselves at peace with that, and the result is detonations across the, the Ummah, uh, that's a purely exoteric form of religion that assumes that strictness and difficulty is always a sign of piety, which is, from the point of view of Usul, completely crazy. Uh, it's just not what our scholars would say. We have this principle. Most of the rules of Sharia are deduced through analogical deduction, Qiyas. One of the ways in which that operates in most of the madhahib is something called istihsan. If an analogical deduction results in something that brings hardship or difficulty to human beings, then you can find a less obvious hadith or less obvious interpretation that will bring ease and you do your qiyas on that basis. And istihsan means looking for what is beautiful. Modern tradition, it seems to the ummah, because people are not interested in beauty but serving their anger, is what one might call istiqbah. What is the ugliest interpretation of the sharia I can find that will really show them, that will make the regime really angry? That'll show my friends how uncompromising I am. And the ego then turns to the sharia, which is supposed to be about mercy and a prophetic wish for mercy, 
into something that is the opposite of mercy, and that's one of the most subversive uh, things you can do to religion, uh, to replace this tendency towards beauty with this tendency to enshrine the anger of frustrated third world oppressed people, uh, to turn that into the operative principle of jurisprudence. That's the end of the Sharia, really, because it's the exact opposite. But there's a lot of that nowadays, people who think that strictness is the same as piety. Go and read a book of Usul. Halakal Mutanati'un, the Holy Prophet says. Uh, May the fanatics perish. They do sooner or later. So this is the idea of the asrar, the secrets of purity, fasting, of prayer. The sunnah as something that has within itself something of the transformational. They're symbolic things. I wash and the water comes from heaven and so that's a symbolic thing and I hope that inwardly it'll have the same effect. And it does have a certain psychosomatic correlation, but there's something deeper going on, which is that God himself, through the ideal prophetic model, has turned those practices into, at a very deep, imponderable level, something that will restore you to the fitra and to a kind of balanced and serene human normality. Very often you may not see that, like with the hajj. What is this sa'i and tawaf and arafat and what on earth is that? It has an effect. You won't be able to define it, even though some scholars uh, do so. So we might say that this is the, the batin of the sunnah, that it restores us to a form of human balance, enabling us to be sheltered from the crazy storms of the age which are directed by hedonism and pride and money and the other stuff we human beings like, that it is a suit of armour that restores us, actually in a beautiful way because it's a beautiful form of life, to something that is normal, natural, primordial, balanced. We might say the sunnah is more essential now than in any previous period of history because human beings are so stretched and warped and unhappy and... uh, depressed. So the sunnah therefore restores us to normalcy and it is that normalcy that the Qur'an addresses uh, in its invitation that we should see the world and be astonished, delighted, amazed and should embrace its creator. It is the sound heart that sees God's signs in the world and it is the egotist who doesn't want to see and isn't interested and doesn't have the time. Our modern lifestyle is not epistemologically conducive to religious knowledge. Because even when we, I live in a village, there was a time when people would go cycling and they would wear canvas shorts and have a a sack and a creaky old bicycle and they would be looking at the landscape and it would be slow and they would be part of the landscape. Now all the cyclists in my village, they're in lycra, they've got goggles, they're doing this, they can't see anything and they've got some nasty thing that tells them whether they've beaten their previous record. (laughs) What is that? And the world is beautiful around them but no, it's the self, the body. They're missing a lot. What, What is the point? You might as well go to the gym and do something really futile. Uh, like the, ancient, the ancient Romans had things for slaves to do that all the time. and Now we pay for the pleasure. So we're quite sick in that we don't see God's superabundant cornucopia of amazing beauty, which is not a kind of philosophical argument, but something that 
in the serene soul sinks in until it all becomes very natural and obvious. But we don't have the time for that. We don't look out. Uh, even the Saudis in their superlative uh, intelligence and brilliance and wisdom now built a high-speed train so the Hajjis can save an hour getting from Mecca to Medina. MashaAllah, Allahu Akbar. Never mind what it does to the gazelles in the desert that want to cross the line. Or, no, Allahu Akbar. Uh, what's the point of that? He used to sit in the bus and it was slow and he'd stop at these places where you'd get rather dubious meals, but you'd engage with people and you'd see the world and you were prepared for your arrival in the holy city. But now, anyway, it's um, depressing. But uh, modernity really exists, you could say, in order to stop us experiencing the world. It's there to stop us experiencing the world. And instead we experience our own cool mediocrities all the time. They're designed to hold our attention. <coughs> Difficult not to be distracted by it all. You walk through a shopping centre and try and recite something nice, but all of the things are kind of screaming to you and the psychologists have determined exactly how to hold your attention. Uh, uh, so you can't really blame people nowadays for not being really spiritual and religious and for being depressed because we're not living the way our species is designed to live. Anyway, so that's been the, I think, hopefully interesting, definitely to me significant, preparation for uh, our subject today, which is really about the people, the heroes who have sacrificed their lives in order to preserve this thing called the sunnah for us. We only have it because of generations of hadith scholars and ahl al-hadith and fuqaha who spent their lives and their fortunes and their health taking these things like you know, gold coins from the prophetic legacy and making sure they were handed on absolutely right and testing them to see if the gold was perhaps alloyed with something else. Spending their lives on that, passing it on. The most precious legacy. A book can be preserved in a library, but a living tradition uh, of how a human being was is a more subtle thing than that. Uh, and that's why it's necessary really when you study Islam to study with somebody rather than just to read something on a website. And you can't actually narrate a hadith in Islam unless you've been authorized to do that. Nowadays, we prepare khutbahs by picking up a translation of some hadith collection and out it comes. And uh, that's one reason why there's so much dysfunction in our communities because the material has to be accompanied by the wisdom uh, on the adab of the majlis of learning, which we think we can now, we can learn Islam from our handheld devices. It's not really structured to facilitate that. But in any case, uh, the Ahl al-Hadith, the people of Hadith, those who uh, amidst extraordinary effort, feats of memorization, feats of geographical globetrotting, conserved this and they knew its importance uh, and they have handed it down to ourselves. So uh, who are they? Who were they? What were they like? That's what we want to look at. And the story begins uh, with a reminder of the universalism and the non-tribalism of the religion, which is part of its Ishmaelite charisma and part of its khatmiyya. 
with a guy in Central Asia called Bardisbah, Zoroastrian. Dehqan, in other words, is a kind of local squire. Never converts to Islam. He dies as Bardisbah. Uh, but he has a son called, uh, who takes the name Al-Mughira following his conversion in the city of Bukhara. This is the beginning of the great age of conversions. Uh, and begins the line of scholars which leads to his own son called Ibrahim, about whom we don't really know very much, and then Ismail, who becomes a significant Muslim scholar of Bukhara, is the great-grandson of the Zoroastrian landowner. Uh, and he studies in Mecca on Hajj, and so much of this Hadith business is facilitated by Islam's extraordinary web of pilgrimage and merchant routes. It was a very networked world. So in 179 we find him in the Hajj and he's studying under the Hajj scholars. There he studies under Imam Malik, under Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak, who's another Central Asian, who is an expert on <coughs> Zuhud and Sufi things. Um, he was asked when he was dying on his deathbed uh, about whether his inheritance was halal, and he said he believed that he'd never accepted anything from a unlawful source. And this used to be part of the akhlaq of Muslims when handing on wealth. They would not hand on wealth that had come to them by some dubious means. Um, that would, they would always give away in sadaqah without the intention of sadaqah. Uh, but they made sure that their descendants always inherited 100% uh, halal wealth. Now he has a son, so Ismail bin Ibrahim has a son who's called Muhammad, who then becomes one of the great academic superstars in the firmament of Muslim scholarship and the Imam, really the Qibla of the Ahl al-Hadith, who was born in 194 in Central Asia, in Bukhara. If you've been to Uzbekistan, you'll know that Bukhara is still a really beautiful and evocative place, um, unlike some other uh, Soviet towns which were remodelled according to scientific principles, alas. Um, it's conserved much of its historic urban fabric intact, uh, worth going. So he's from Bukhara, uh, becomes orphaned as a child, uh, brought up by his mother, Ibn Kathir, tells us a story uh, that when he was a child, he contracted a disease and went blind. His mother wept. Uh, and she saw the Prophet Ibrahim salam, in a dream, who told her that because of her grief and her love for her child, God would restore the child's sight. And this turns out to be great news for the Ummah, because the child Muhammad bin Ismail is, of course, going to become the great Imam al-Bukhari, one of the real paradigms of leadership in our Ummah. Now, as a child, he was somebody who just loved knowledge. He loved learning things. And this wasn't like the kind of modern child who is precocious and a bit of a bore and a bit of a brat who wants a 
chemistry set for his 10th birthday and is really nerdy and mm, not like that. Um, but instead, seeing the beauty of Qur'an and Hadith and the importance of those things for actual human life. So it was a genuine love and a genuine passion. And those who have seriously set out on the path of sacred knowledge to this day will be motivated, if they're at all serious and have open hearts, by the beauty of what they are studying. There's something about the Qur'an that carries one through it to the point of hifz and memorization, its internal rhythms and landscapes. It's quite unique and intoxicating. And so it is with the hadith and with the fiqh that you really have to be in love with the beauty of this inherited tradition before you can you know, spend 20 years or whatever it requires to become any kind of even little mufti in the traditional system. It, it's not just you want a job because it's not really a very well-paying job to be a mufti, but you have to really, really love it. And that is part of love for the Holy Prophet, because the fiqh is nothing other than the current state of the ulama's discussions as to how to follow him. It's a prophetic discipline. So uh, his father, who has died, leaves him with quite a bit of money, and he's relatively wealthy throughout his life. Uh, and uh, in... Bukhara and neighbouring towns, uh, we're told that when he was still a child, uh, he memorised 70,000 hadiths. This is the kind of phenomenal memory of the child that you can still pick up, and children do have that capacity. 5% of children are thought to be born with an eidetic memory, which is kind of, because it's not really used in our culture, tends to fade with age. But if you get a child who has that capacity, and you feed the memory with things, the child can really be a, uh, a prodigy. And you still see some children have amazing memories, like uh, uh, I know somebody who uh, on her 16th birthday said, Daddy, where's my snake? <coughs> Daddy said, well, never. Yes, when I was little, you promised that when I was 16, I could have a snake. And she was about three when Daddy had made that promise, assuming the child would forget it within five minutes. Uh, children can have really good memories, uh, but our culture doesn't really know what to make of that. So in primary schools, instead of giving the kids what their minds are ready for, which is to memorise a lot of things, you do projects of various kinds, or you do citizenship, or that sort of claptrap, or you sing some pop waste of their brains, really, because the brain is not designed for analysis at that age is designed to absorb stuff um, because it's those learned things that are going to provide life skills. So that's another silliness of our culture. But in Muslim culture, when they found a child that had that capacity of that 5%, the whole system would be oriented towards making the most of that person. Um, so each, for each of the 70,000 hadiths, we're told that he would learn about the narrators of the hadith, because, of course, the difficult bit of hadith study is that the hadith is in two parts. The matan, which is what is being transmitted, usually from the Holy Prophet, and the isnad, which is this list of narrators. And that can get really complicated. Some hadith have dozens of different <coughs> lines, different isnads. And before you can begin to pronounce on the usability of a hadith, you have to know all of those things. It's uh, kind of the Rolls Royce of Muslim scholarship, really. It's difficult. And you are transmitting something that the Ummah knows to be really precious. You don't want to be uh, 
narrator of weak things and to be recalled forever after as somebody nobody takes his hadith that's not a good epitaph so you want to get it right so he learned the narrators and many of his books actually are specifically about the narrators so he learns all the hadith that he can hoover up in the great city of Bukhara and then he takes his older brother and his mother off on Hajj Um, so we have now what are we looking at now Yeah, here's a, an account from one of his students, and this is preserved in Al Khatib al Baghdadi's Tariq Baghdad, which is about a 14 volume uh, bio- biographical dictionary of the great scholars of Baghdad. Um, there's a lot of them. So, Qultuli uh, Abi. Uh, I once said to Muhammad bin Ismail al-Bukhari, الحديث, How did he start off learning or seeking hadith? الكتاب, I was inspired by or to the memorization of hadith when I was still at the Kutab, the primary school. قال, and he said, and uh, how old were you at that time? قال عشر سنين أو أقل I was ten years old or less. ثم خرجت من الكتاب بعد العشر And then after the primary school, uh, I left after the age of ten. فجعلت أختلف إلى الداخلي وغيره And then I went to one of the great Bukharan scholars called الداخلي and others. وقال يوما فيما كان يقرأ للناس Sufyan an Abi Zubair an Ibrahim. One day, in what he was reciting, repeating to people, uh, Ad Dakhili would say, This this Isnad, Sufyan, on the authority of Abu Zubair, on the authority of Ibrahim. And I said to him, Ya Abba Fulan, Inna Abba Zubair lam yirwi an Ibrahim. So this little boy is interrupting the great Hadith scholar and saying, Abu Zubair never narrated anything from Ibrahim. Huh? So he grabbed me and I, I said to him, Go back to the original copy. If, if you have it. So he went into his house. And he looked, looked, looked it up. And then he said to me, so how should it be? Uh, so he's testing him. And I said, Who was Zubair bin Adi an Ibrahim? The real isnad is that Zubair uh, ibn Adi on the authority of Ibrahim. So he took my pen and he corrected his own copy of the book. And he said, you're right. And some of his students said to him, How old were you, O Bukhari, when you answered back to the great scholar? فقال, I was 11. Uh, 
And when I grew to be 16, حفظ to كتب ابن المبارك ووركيع وعرفت كلام هؤلاء. So when I was 16, I memorized the books of Ibn al-Mubarak and Waqiyah, and I knew that particular discourse, which is the discourse of Zuhud. Uh, those two scholars, um, Ibn al-Mubarak, who was a great scholar of Maru, which is in Central Asia, uh, wrote a famous kitab of Zuhud about asceticism, which is a hadith collection, which is very early and important. And Waqiyah, Ibn al-Jarrah, also wrote, he was a contemporary, a three-volume uh, a collection of hadiths about Zuhud, austerity, asceticism. Those are the two big books in that genre. Some ulama specialized in particular genres, and they were famous uh, for this. Um, uh, Waqiya was from Nishapur, another Central Asian, and like Bukhari is thought to have been of local ancestry from, from the, the, Sogd, the, the Sogdians. So, Already, as a teenager, he's uh, a prodigy. Uh, then he goes to the Hejaz, and he stays for about six years in uh, Mecca, in Syria. Goes to Egypt, stays in Basra, where he says, كَتَبْتُ عَنْ أَلْفٍ وَثَمَانِينَ نَفْسًا لَيْسَ فِيهِمْ إِلَّا صَاحِبُ حَدِيثٍ I wrote down material from 1,800, uh, 1,080 people who were all narrators of hadith. So who are his teachers? Uh, Ibn Hajr al-Asqalani, in his great preface to his own commentary on uh, uh, Bukhari, uh, which he calls the Hedya Seri. It's a kind of preliminary volume, which is all about Bukhari and the way in which he narrates uh, his biography and his criteria for classifying and authenticating hadith. Hedya Seri, it's a very important book. He divides Bukhari's teachers into five different groups. Number one, man haddathahu anit tabi'in. Uh, his teachers who are narrating from the tabi'in. In other words, these are the famous thulathiyat. The thulathiyat are hadiths narrated by isnads that have just three intermediary transmitters between the one who's writing the collection, in this case Bukhari, and the Holy Prophet the Thulathiyat of Bukhari are regarded as some of the, the golden, golden hadiths of Islam. Number two, uh, those who are from the same generation uh, but did not actually narrate from the Tabi'in. So they were the same age as Bukhari's teachers but their Isnads were not through the, the Tabi'in themselves. Category number three, Man haddatha an atba' at-Tabi'in. Those who narrated from the followers of the followers. So there's four intermediaries in these isnads. And there's important people like Ahmed bin Hanbal in this category, uh, Ishaq bin Rahaway, and other great uh, authors of hadith collections. And these hadiths tend to go into the hadiths in Sahih Muslim as well. If we have time, we'll talk about the differences between Muslim and, and Bukhari. Um, they're both the great Sahih works of Islam, but um, Bukhari tends to have these tulathiyat and these very, what they call high isnads, Ali isnads, with, which is just a, uh, an isnad with a small number of narrators. There's other differences uh, as well. Um, he also narrates from his colleagues, including some who are a bit older than himself, Abu Hatim al-Razi from Rai, which is now a kind of suburb buried under the concrete jungle of modern Tehran, but was one of the great uh, hadith centers. Um, 
uh, and also narrates from some younger than himself, including some of his students. There's not many hadiths in his Sahih that are from people younger than himself, but there's a few. So he lives mainly in Nishapur. The great cities of Khorasan, Central Asia, are Mar, Shash, which is now Tashkent, uh, Samarkand, uh, Bukhara, Nishapur, Tors, where Imam al-Ghazali is from, and there's some other towns. Uh, Khorasan, Central Asia, doesn't really correspond to any current present-day national or provincial uh, entity. It's, it's bigger than the old Soviet Central Asia. It includes most of what's now Afghanistan and the top right-hand corner of Iran. Uh, but again, as part of the Khatmiya and the inclusiveness of Islam, it's interesting that so many of the great Arab grammarians and Hadith scholars, those who are at the heart of the preservation of the, the Arabic uh, Hadith and Qur'an legacy, are actually from this area, from a, an ancient Persian and Turkic uh, region. So uh, he stays uh, mainly in Nishapur, where he has a number of key students uh, but also, uh, and maybe the best known of whom is Imam Muslim, Muslim Ibn al-Hajjaj and Nishapuri, who outlives him by five years, who becomes the author of the great Sahih Muslim, um, which is also translated. Uh, like many of these people, uh, he gets into trouble with the governors. Uh, his teacher, Waqiyah, has been punished by Harun al-Rashid for not doing what he was told. Uh, and Bukhari also is the typical traditional scholar who refuses to be a kind of state mufti type personality of the kind that we're all too familiar nowadays with the kind of nationalizing of Islam that's going on everywhere. That he would not accept this. This ulama have to be independent of the state. And of course, Imam Malik, Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal got into the same kind of, of hot water with the, the uh, early Abbasid state. So he uh, refuses to go to the palace in Bukhara and if you go to Bukhara, you can still see the palace, although it's nowadays mostly a 17th, 18th century uh, structure, but it was in the same location. He wouldn't go to teach the governor's children in the palace. He wanted to do hadith. He didn't want to teach alif bat to royal brats. He said no. So the governor's really angry and chucks him out. So he goes to this place called Khartank, which is this village north of Samarkand, middle of nowhere really. It's like half an hour's drive north of Samarkand, but a rural location where he spends the last few years of his life and where he dies and is buried. Uh, and nowadays it's a kind of pilgrimage site. Uh, it's always full of people and it's nice. Big rose gardens and the buildings have been rebuilt. I was there in, uh, I guess, the 80s in the communist period when it was still kind of uh, supposed to be just a historical building, but it was still very much a, a living centre for the, the village. Uh, and uh, it's since been rebuilt and enlarged, and there's museums, and it's uh, part of sometimes the Uzbek government's attempt to kind of demonstrate its uh, religious or cultural credentials. It's been a symbol that's been regarded with some ambiguity by different areas of the Uzbek post-communist establishment. But it is a nice place to visit. And uh, when I was there, I was with Dr. Omar Abdullah and some others, and the imams kindly kind of unlocked, because there's a big blue dome over the 
the Tabort, but you can actually go down to the real grave, which is underneath that, and there's a little place where you can sit. So we did that, which was a very uh, fragrant, fragrant place. So the Ummah has honoured him, but you can see the, uh, <laughs> the, the difficulty of, of framing this in terms of a paradigm of leadership, because he's an academic. He's not Imam Shamil with his flashing sword, or Sukaina with her ready wit and her teenage hairstyle. And he's basically reading books, reciting hadiths, being absolutely super meticulous. And one of the great achievements of classical Islam is the development of this, this rich and extremely conscientious forensic philological tradition of assessing historical data which the Muslims don't seem to have got from any other civilization. It's something that was developed. The Isnad is a kind of new Islamic innovation. We'd really love to have an Isnad for the four Gospels. Wouldn't that be great? Just a few. Then you could actually see who might have written them or what their authenticity is, but there's nothing like that. This is something that is particular to Islamic civilization. Although some of the Hindu texts also have something attached to them that looks like an Isnad. Um, but this is certainly an indigenous Islamic evolution and one that at the hands of, of super scholars, highly critical minds like Imam Bukhari becomes you know, part of the pride of Islamic civilization and one of the most paradigmatically Islamic sciences, the, the jarh wa ta'adil, uh, the assessment of the reliability of narrators, those who are passing on these gold coins from... Uh, from the past. Uh, to understand this, again, we need to revert to this idea of hefs. Uh, Ibn Kathir says of Bukhari that He'd look once at a hadith, or hear it once, and he'd memorise it. That would be it. It would just stick in his mind. It's like uh, Mozart. Here at the age of five, he could hear a, a tune at the opera, come home and he could play the whole thing on the piano. And this was documented and of course all the courts of Europe wanted this little five-year-old whose feet couldn't even reach the floor playing the piano. It's a miracle of the human creation really that some kids can do that. So Imam al-Bukhari is from that uh, capacity. Um, it's also, and this is also worth bearing in mind when we consider the vast importance of memorization in our culture, uh, that it is something the brain is designed for and something that the brain thrives on. You can read polemical works about Islam saying that Muslims didn't really develop much that was original because their brains were full of memorized stuff. Once you'd memorized the Quran, there wasn't really room in the brain somehow to have thoughts of your own. Well, it is the case that some scholars are simply regurgitators of what they know. And if what they know is enough for their societies, that's fine. But we've also created any number of analytic minds. And the latest neuroscience indicates that memorization actually aids brain function. So, University of Wisconsin, Richard Davidson has done some research on this. The effect of ritual and meditative practice on neural pathways. It seems again the brain is designed for us to regularly meditate or have rituals and prayers. We've always done this since the time of 
remote ancestors. It's normal to us. And that the brain actually functions better and endorphins are released. We're more cheerful when we have ritual in our lives and when we uh, memorize. Um, uh, again, this is part of the primordiality of Islam. This kind of memorizing thing wasn't emphasized so much in Christian civilization, but for Muslims, yeah, man lam yahfaz, lam ya'lam. Whoever hasn't memorized doesn't know. And if you've had the good fortune to see traditional scholars at work, and the fact that they regard books, particularly printed books, as kind of things they'd rather not have around them when they're teaching, because if you don't know the stuff, then why are you studying it? Uh, one of my teachers in Mecca studied Sahih Muslim with him, and he was this really old guy smoking his shisha. He was in his 90s at the time, Sheikh Yasin al-Ferdani. Uh, and the shisha wasn't tobacco, it was herbs and things. Really, really old. Uh, originally from Patania in South Thailand. And these young Syrians were sitting around with Sahih Muslim. And they would do the traditional Samar thing of reading the hadith. And by the time they got through the whole thing, that he was happy that they'd understood it, he'd give them the ijazah. And the sheikh was kind of there and kind of looked as if he was dead. Kind of you could only see that he was alive because occasionally there'd be bubbles coming up in the, she in the shisha. So, ah, he's still listening. But uh, when one of the students read something wrongly, usually because it was a misprint, the sheikh would kind of come to life and tell them the correct version. And we'd all write it in our copies. The printed books of hadith are not the hadith, and the ulama will not allow fatwas or any serious religious scholarship on the basis of books that have been printed by some gangster in Beirut to make money. Uh, that's not the legacy of the Holy Prophet, quite apart from the fact that there are different narrations, which is something that Muslims tend not to know at all. Bukhari is not just one thing, the way the Quran is one thing, with its variant vocalizations. Bukhari has different riwayat, different narrations. Bukhari's various students reported the book somewhat differently. So the one we have today, which we normally use, is the narration of Firabri. And he was about 100 years later and in a village also in Central Asia. And his Bukhari's kind of star pupil and his pupil, Al-Kushmehani, gives us the version that is usually printed today in the Arab world, the Kushmehani variant of Firabri's Bukhari. But there's other ones, Ibn Dawood and other versions, Riwayat of Bukhari. And this, again, is a problem for Muslims who think, oh, I just want Qur'an and Sunnah, so let me go to the Mohsin Khan translation of Bukhari and see how to pray. That isn't even Bukhari. That's somebody's translation of the Kushmehani variant of Firabri's narration of Bukhari and have you looked at the others and how you pray is important. That's why we need jurists to sort this stuff out because it's really hard work. Uh, so we need to remember that these uh, hadith collections exist as literary traditions. The Muatta, which is earlier, Imam Malik, there's maybe 70 or 80 different Muattas, some of them quite a bit longer, some of them shorter. The Muatta of Shaybani, which is one of the variants, has been published in English translation recently. And ah, But we want things to be simple, but we also want to do it all ourselves, which is characteristically modern aberration. You wouldn't apply that to, say, nuclear physics. 
I'm not going to bother with Einstein and all of those boring physicists. I'm going to do it myself. Uh, well, good luck in the laboratory with that. You have to be part of a family of discussion. This is an elma. It is a heritage. So the memorization, yeah. And so there's, uh, here's a nice book. I bought it when I was in Egypt. Biography of Imam Bukhari by Sheikh Abdul Ghani Abdul Khaliq, one of my favorite people, great Azhari, who was, uh, did many things, he was a professor at Al-Azhar, but also was the imam for many years of the mosque of Sayyidah Nafisa, which is one of the two or three great shrine mosques in Cairo. And there's a big maulid, and it's kind of, especially for the working classes in Cairo, it's hundreds of thousands of people, uh, colored lights, and it's a kind of, Fiesta, uh, but a really serious scholar. Imam Shafi went to her in order to study with her. She was called Nafisa al-Ilm, the Nafisa of knowledge. She's the great granddaughter of Imam al-Hassan, Imam al-Hussein's brother. So she's from the Ahlul Bayt, uh, and Imam Shafi uh, was actually financially supported by her. She was one of these wealthier women, like 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 Sukaina. And according to Ibn al-Ahmad and a number of other narrators, it's even reported that on his deathbed, Imam al-Shafi'i said he wanted Sayyidah Nafisa to lead his janazah. What could that mean? It's in the sources, Allahu A'lam, but it's indicative of uh, the knowledge the Ummah has of the enormous respect in which she was held. I recommend that you go and uh, visit, pay your respects, inshallah, and absorb the, the blessings. So he was the imam of Sayyidina Nafisa's mosque and a kind of classical Azhari hadith scholar. So he has this nice book in Arabic about Imam al-Bukhari and his sahih and all of the commentaries. So here, if I can find it, one, two, seven. Yeah. This is a, an example from somebody called Ibn Adi, who's one of the slightly later hadith uh, virtuosi. Uh, about the stories that scholars would tell about Imam al-Bukhari's memory, and these people used to test each other. Um, so, قال الحافظ أبو أحمد ابن عادي and some other sources سمعت عدة مشايخ يحكمون Many of my teachers would tell me this story. Muhammad bin Ismail al-Bukhari قادم بغداد Al-Bukhari came to Baghdad. And the Hadith specialists in the town heard of him having turned up. So they arranged a gathering and they wanted to test his memory. So they took a hundred Hadith and they jumbled up the muton, the text, with the isnad. So they gave the wrong isnad to the different hadiths. وَجَعَلُوا مَتْنَ هَذَا الْإِسْنَادِ لِإِسْنَادٍ آخَرَ وَإِسْنَادَ هَذَا الْمَتْنِ لِمَتْنِ آخَرَ وَدَفَعُوا إِلَىٰ عَشَرَةِ أَنفُسِ And they got ten scholars إِلَىٰ كُلِّ رَجُلٍ عَشَرَةَ أَحَدِيثِ They gave ten of these fake hadiths to ten different people. وَأَمَرُوهُمْ إِذَا حَضَرُوا الْمَجْلِسِ and told them that when they went to Imam al-Bukhari's majlis 
and yulqu dhalika ala al-Bukhari to recite these hadiths to Bukhari. وَأَخَذُوا الْمَوْعِدْ لِلْمَجْلِسِ The time was set for the majlis. فَحَضَرَ الْمَجْلِسُ جَمَاعَةُ أَصْحَابِ الْحَدِيثِ مِنَ الْغُرَبَاءِ And a number of non-Baghdadis attended this uh, hadith gathering. مِنْ أَهْلِ خُرَسَانِ وَغَيْرِهَا From the Central Asians and others. وَمِنَ الْبَغْدَادِيِينَ And from some local Baghdadis. فَلَمَّا اطْمَأَنَّ الْمَجْلِسُ بِأَهْلِهِ And when the uh, class had settled down, انتدب إليه رجل من العشرة one of the ten addressed him فسأله عن حديث من تلك الأحاديث and asked him about one of these hadiths فقال البخاري لا أعرفه البخاري said I don't know that hadith فسأله عن آخر and the same man asked him about another one فقال لا أعرفه I don't know it فما زال يلقي عليه واحدا يلقى عليه واحدا بعد واحد so hadith after hadith was recited to him. <coughs> and normally, in a hadith session, the hadith is narrated and he says, it's isnad and this is correct and this is not correct and this is the reason. He's just saying, I don't know it. I don't know it. Throughout the class. The man recited all ten of these bogus hadiths. Bukhari just said, I don't know. فَكَانَ الْفُقَحَاءُ مِنْ مَنْ حَضَرَ الْمَجْلِسِ so the jurists who were present in the a gathering sort of looked at each other. The man understands, he's got it. But others, people who are not so learned, judged Bukhari to be a loser, incapable, inadequate. Uncomprehending. Thumman Tadaba Rajulun Akhir min Ashara, Fasa'alahu an Hadith min Tirkal Ahadith il Makluba. And then another of those ten men came to him and asked him about more of these inverted muddled hadiths. Fakala La Arif. Falam Yazal Yulki Alihi Wahidin Bada Wahid and so forth. And it keeps going. This whole class is just people asking the hadiths that seem to be fine, saying, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. ثُمَّ انْتَدَبَ إِلَيْهِ الثَّالِثِ وَالْرَابِعِ إِلَى تَمَامِ الْعَشَرَةِ هَتَّى فَرَغُوا كُلُّهُمْ مِنَ الْأَحَدِيثِ الْمَقْلُوبَةِ وَالْبُخَارِ لَا يَزِيدُهُمْ عَلَى لَا أَعْرِفُهُ At the end, all hundred of these hadiths have been presented. Imam al-Bukhari says, I don't know. It doesn't say anything more than that. فَلَمَّا عَلِمَ الْبُخَارِيُّ أَنَّهُمْ قَدْ فَرِغُوا When Bukhari realized that they'd finished, Faqala, he turned to the first of the questioners and he said, As for your first hadith, you said such and such a thing. But the correct version is this, and he gives the correct version of the hadith. And your second hadith was this, but the correct version is that. Uh, and he did them in the same order, the third and the fourth. Until he finished the first ten. So he unjumbled them and returned each hadith to its proper isnad. And every isnad to its correct matin. And he did the same thing with all of the others. 
And we connected all of the hadiths to their correct isnads. And the people present recognized the quality of his, uh, uh, his memorization and his academic virtue. And Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani in his Hadi Sari, reflecting on this story says that the most amazing thing about it is that not only that he knew the correct versions, but that he remembered in order the, the hundred hadith that had been narrated to him and who had asked them, and he was able to reconnect them just from his, from his mind. And if you uh, spend time with traditional hadith scholars nowadays, you'll see that yeah, this is indeed how they are. Um, they might occasionally ask somebody present to go to a bookshelf and to check something. They'll say, oh, it's the red book, and it's third from the left on the second shelf, and I think it's about page 234, and we'll go, yeah, right, and it always is. I've seen that myself. It's uh, pretty humbling if you're part of the modern academic thing, which doesn't really rely much on memorization, but you just know where to look things up in encyclopedias. To see that is quite, uh, quite startling. So uh, we should finish, but remember that in the story of Ibn Adi, they've not just complimented him on his memory, but on his fadl. And this idea of the fadila of the alim is important. Academic merits doesn't quite do it justice. Sometimes when fadila to Sheikh, the Sheikh al-Azhar is introduced in Lambeth Palace or somewhere, they'll say, your grace or your reverence, because they don't know how to do sahib al-fadila. But fadila really means merit and virtue. Uh, it indicates the, the moral quality of the person. So we know, for instance, that uh, Imam al-Bukhari, having inherited a lot, uh, used to spend his money basically on supporting students. And towards the end of his life, uh, wanted to distribute most of his inheritance to the poor. And to find out who the poor were in the town, he didn't go to the governor uh, in Nishapur because he thought, well, the scribes there are going to ask me for some kind of tip to look these things up. And he didn't want to do it that way. So he asked around himself and most of his money went to the poor. Um, always invited passers-by. This is the traditional image of the Muslim scholar as a great host. It's, it's reported in the text that there were never less than a hundred people at his dinner table in the evening. He would just invite anybody who was around and uh, was happy uh, and a very social person, it seems. And this again fits in with what we know about the great Olamat, which is that in order to understand the validity of the practice of the religion, they really have to know society. You can't be a monk and then write a book about marriage, really. It happens in some cultures, but in Islam you have to be absolutely in the world, which is why Abu Hanifa benefited so much from being a, a trader in the, the, the market in Iraq, because he actually learned how people are. And the fatwas were um, uh, oriented accordingly. So. Um, Known basically as a hadith transmitter uh, and somebody with very strict criteria for the uh, acceptance of hadith. Um, he also had some 
fiqh opinions and occasionally the fatwas of Bukhari are cited. Um, one famous fatwa on uh, uh, involuntary divorce, for instance, and uh, a few others, because he did study with the Ahl al-Ra'i and the people who were using more intuitive, uh, commonsensical arguments in jurisprudence. Um, his fatwa that it's permissible to recite poetry in the mosque, that's attributed to him. It's permissible for women as well as men to sleep in the mosque, but the women have to have a screen. Um, <coughs> a woman doesn't have to remove her veil in court as long as her identity can be proven from her voice, things like this. Uh, but he's not really the founder of a madhab. He's known as a hadith expert. And he has not just the sahih, but other books as well, most of which are still actively used by the ulama. One of them, which has been translated into English, is Al-Adab Al-Mufrad, which is a collection of hadith uh, which is specifically about adab, courtesy and akhlaq. Uh, he has a book uh, identifying the names of the companions, Asami al-Sahaba, which is important for uh, isnad verification because sometimes an isnad will just say Abu Umama related to me. Or which Abu Umama? There might be a couple of dozen. So there's a genre of, ha of hadith scholarship which is about identifying certain individuals by their kunya uh, and also by the ism, the name as well as the, the patronymic. Um, <coughs> he's also famous for a book that we do use a lot, Tariq al-Kabir, uh, the great dating. He also has a middle-sized version and a shorter version, but we basically just use the, the big one, which is about four volumes, uh, which contains the names uh, of about 40,000 men and women <coughs> who are <coughs> cited in the science of hadith memorization. Um, and a few other books, but the Sahih, we have to say something about this, uh, the greatest book in Islam after the, the Qur'an, probably. Some Maliki diehards would roll their eyes at this, but most Muslims would say, yeah, it's the second, second of our books. It took him 16 years to write, to assemble. Um, some of it was actually written when he was in Mecca, in the Haram of, of Mecca. Um, he said that he'd sifted through about 600,000 hadiths, and he chose um, about, the usual number is 7,397, but exactly how many depends on which riwayah you're using and also on whether you include repeated hadiths or hadiths that seem to be the same but are in different versions. Um, fully independent hadiths, which are not repetitions or versions, about 2,600 in the Sahih. Uh, this is very much part of the heyday of, of hadith narration. Uh, and the structure of the book reflects what is sometimes called the Sahih movement or the Sunan movement. That is to say, hadith collections that try to be comprehensive rather than, say, like Ibn Mubarak's book on Zuhud, uh, and which are arranged systematically according to subject rather than according to the narrators, either the narrator from the Sahabi or the narrator that the Muhaddith has received it from, Mu'jam or Musnad. Uh, but a, a sahih or a sunan work is one that is arranged according to certain recognized practical topics, not just fiqh topics, but also topics of tafsir and topics of doctrine.
Iman, Tafsir, and so forth. So uh, this movement continues for about 200 years after his death. Ibn Hibban, who has a really big Sahih, dies in about 350, uh, is the, the last of them. So Sahih Bukhari, 97 chapters with subsections, um, and very often uh, Imam al-Bukhari will actually add a comment of his own, or quote, quote a comment from uh, one of the Sahaba or some other narrator. And this is one reason why the ulama tend to prefer it to the Sahih of Muslim, even though the Sahih of Muslim is longer, about 12,000 hadiths, I think, uh, because Muslim never gives you his own sense of what might be sayable about an isnad or a text, um, uh, and doesn't usually quote other sources uh, either. Um, and similarly, al-Bukhari, Quite often, hadiths which have variants will seem to be relevant to different subjects. There might be a hadith which tells you something about the Hajj, which also tells you something about jihad, for instance. So which chapter do you put it under? If you're writing something like Musnad, like Ibn Hanbal, well, you just put it under the name of the narrator. The subject doesn't matter. But in this generation, which is trying to uh, arrange things by topic, Sometimes it's a judgment call. So sometimes a hadith that is identical or nearly identical will appear in several, under several different headings um, in the Sahih, which uh, Imam Muslim tends not to do. Variants you'll tend to put all in a single place, which um, can help, which is why, say, Nawawi's commentary on uh, Sahih Muslim is in many ways more useful than any commentary on Sahih al-Bukhari, because he's able to look at all of the hadith variants uh, which enables him to, to pronounce on whatever fatwa or fa'idah issue the benefit that there might be for us, whereas commentary on Bukhari has to cross-reference a lot. Um, so, yeah, we have this uh, book, alhamdulillah. Um, uh, finally, commentaries, uh, maybe 70 complete commentaries on Bukhari. It's obviously a big book and a commentary may run into 30 or 40 volumes. Al-Qastalani, uh, Al-Aini. Um, Ibn Rajab wrote a very good beginning commentary, um, but never finished it. Uh, Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali, whose um, Jawami al-Hikam, I think it's called, has been done into English recently, which is a really nice book. Um, uh, it's a hadith uh, commentary. Uh, but the greatest is Ibn Hajr al-Asqalani's uh, Fath al-Bari and the introduction Had Yassari, which I mentioned earlier, which is one of our great sources for information about Imam al-Bukhari's life. And Ibn Hajr, you know, really uh, from the, the, the late Mamluk period in Egypt, one of the great stars of our civilization, and perhaps we should have a separate session about him. And it's interesting also, given the concerns we were looking at last time, that uh, quite a lot of the Hadith scholars in his world uh, were, um, were women, uh, including his mother, uh, his sister, and his wife, Anas Khartoum, who he married when she was still a teenager, but was already uh, in Cairo and in Mecca arranging Hadith classes of her own. The scholars like Imam al-Sakhar, we would come and listen to Hadith uh, from her. And the... Uh, Fath al-Bari, which tends to be how the Muslims receive 
Bukhari. And this, again, is a disadvantage that we have if we're trying to figure out what Islam is from Quran and Sunnah nowadays. Some of our brothers do that the commentaries are not translated. And because about half of them involve really intricate and dry grammatical discussions which are virtually untranslatable, probably never will be uh, translated. That uh, you have to have access to the original, and the original will include a discussion of the variant isnads, and then Ibn Hajar will give you an explanation of difficult words or grammatical uh, constructions. He will report the variant readings. There's the Kushmehani reading, which he uses, but there's other readings as well, uh, which are also Bukhari and need to be reported. He will then give you the fatwa that might come from a particular hadith, not basing himself just on that hadith, but on everything else in the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the Ijma', which is relevant. He will give you uh, the fawa'id, in other words, the kind of the benefits. What were the take-homes for us of this hadith, which are often uh, ethical points, but sometimes doctrinal as well. Um, he often quotes the Sufis, particularly Imam al-Ghazali uh, and Imam al-Qushayri, because of these 70 commentaries on Bukhari, all of them are written by Sufis, uh, people of Tasawwuf, the great preservers of this uh, legacy. And Ibn Hajar has a diwan of poetry, which is full of na'at of the kind that um, I've uh, just shared with you. And a lot of it is uh, istighatha and tawassul directly addressing the Holy Prophet because Ibn Hajar wrote this book in the, the, the Khaniqa of Baybars, which was one of the big Sufi lodges in Cairo. That's where he was living. It was just normal in his world. Uh, and maybe that takes us back to the uh, point we were trying to make at the beginning, which is that for Muslims and for the Ahl al-Hadith, learning Hadith and passing it on is, just, is not just a matter of uh, sort of creating a database of information, but is rather the conservation of a style of life, an art of life, which is to do with this primordial fitri reality which the Holy Prophet والسلام, is enacting for us in a form that we can actually draw on and be inspired by today. Uh, and also the consequences of that life, as Imam al-Ghazali suggests, are an enhanced ability to know reality, to know God, to recognize beauty, light, virtue in human beings and in the world. So this is the epistemological sunnah, which is one of uh, the most characteristic of Islamic uh, conceptions, which it seems to me in our high-tech AI dysfunctional world, where ego is regnant and people have very little self-knowledge or capacity to connect with anything fitri or natural is uh, one of the most indispensable gifts of Islam to our generation. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy on Imam al-Bukhari and grant us insha'Allah to have husnazan of him uh, to benefit from his hadiths and insha'Allah maybe one day to visit his, uh, his mosque and his mazar in Uzbekistan where the people are so friendly and there are many blessings uh, to be had in that place insha'Allah. Barakallahu fikum wal'afu minkum. Assalamu alaikum Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.